Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all of the other great podcasts in the Dice Tower Network family. Whether you're looking for something fun with Flip the Table or whether you're looking to find out how games really work with Ludology, there's something in the network for everyone. So go check them out at Dicetower.com. Thanks to them for their continued support. The Long View is also sponsored by GameSurplus.com. Go and check out GameSurplus.com for all of your online purchasing needs, where customer service is truly exceptional, prices are spectacular, packaging is superb, and the shipping speed can't be beat. That's GameSurplus.com. If you're looking for a particular game, just send Velma an email at games at GameSurplus.com, and she'll be sure to track it down for you. Go and see why they're my preferred retailer. I'd also like to send a special shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're in the northeastern PA region, stop on by. They're conveniently located off of Interstate 80 and right on Main Street. They have a huge and growing uh, selection of board games of all kinds, uh, new titles and older hard-to-find titles like Maria. Uh, They just have something there for everybody, so go and check them out. They have a friendly and knowledgeable staff, and if you're in the area and you want to stop by on Monday nights at 6.30, Lloyd and I are running demos there every week, so come on by the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and tonight I am very pleased to be joined by uh, Matt Thompson, otherwise known as Mad Cat Martini on Board Game Geek. And uh, Matt is a, a gentleman that I've met the past couple of years at WBC and have gotten to know him a little bit and had a, an awful lot of fun uh, playing games with Matt and getting to know him. And uh, he introduced my wife to a game called Medici, which is an oldie but a goodie uh, designed by Reiner Canizia back in 1995. And uh, lo and behold, it uh, was a game my wife really, really enjoyed. And Matt told me that it was one of his absolute favorites, so it was only natural that I said, hey, you know, would you like to come on the show and talk about Medici? So, uh, Matt, I want to say hello and welcome. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show tonight. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me and give me a chance to talk about this great game. Not a problem at all. It's a pleasure to have you on. And, uh, you know, this is one of those games that uh, has been around for quite some time. I've had a little bit of experience playing it on the iOS app that was released years ago, uh, back when iOS games were first kind of coming on the scene. But I never actually played the face-to-face version. And I want to kind of really talk a little bit about that because after speaking with you, I kind of understand that you feel that that's where a lot of the magic in the game happens. So before we kind of dive into that, though, uh, I I would you know, like it if maybe you could spend a little bit of time just telling people out there in case they haven't had a chance to play uh, what Medici is, what the game's about, uh, the basic kind of goals of the game, and the flow. So uh, would you mind kind of giving us a little bit of a, a walkthrough on that? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, there's, I understand that there's a lot of people who love this game, and I am only one of many. So I'm going to go ahead and ask forgiveness for all of you people who are going to be screaming while I talk because um, many opinions are going to be strong about this one. And I can only do, uh, do it so much justice because I know that uh, this game is held in high regard by many, many people. So um, as far as I'm concerned, the game is an absolute blast. It's, um, it's a once-around bidding game, which is kind of the key to the whole thing because you only get one crack at these lots. So you're bidding on lots of goods and you're loading them onto your ships. 
And uh, it's, of course, designed by Reiner Kinesia, who um, this is one of his famous auction trilogy games, along with Modern Art and Raw. Um, so you are traders, and you are trying to buy goods cheaply and selling them uh, at a profit. And the points are money in this game, so um, there's no other currency than that. And, and what's fascinating about it is the lots are pulled by the players. The players whose turn it is determines what lot will be up for sale. And you have one, two, or three items that will be sent around the table one time. And the person who pulled the lot from the bag or deck of cards, depending on your version... Um, they're the ones that uh, get the final bid. And it can be really, really exciting because if you pull a, a really bad lot, you can send it around the table, and if everyone passes on it, it gets thrown into the ocean, and <laughs> thus reducing the number of tiles that become available for everyone. And if that happens too many times, a, one unlucky player, or maybe several, will end up not filling up their boats to their capacity and, uh, you know, putting them in a pretty difficult position. Um, I love the game because of the dynamic. Um, I think the idea of this game solo on an iOS against an AI seems kind of horrific to me because the dynamic of this game between the players is really what makes it. You have, in the Rio Grande version, just an awful-looking box cover that is one of the most uninviting next to Kalis that I've ever seen. <laughs> so you have this uninviting box cover, and people look at you like you're crazy. Oh, no, it's a really fun game. And uh, so you, you, this dynamic is set up where the players just start manipulating and talk, oh, Bobby really needs that green tile. And they start talking it up and trying to you know, throw you off your game and lose your focus and trying to convince you something's much more valuable than it actually is and making you spend too much. And, oh, if you, if you don't bid on it, I'm going to bid on it. Um, so that, to me, is where the heart of the game lies, is all of that interaction and all that kind of trash talk and manipulation. And, and it really can be pretty rowdy and, and silly. Um, that's where I'll stop for now. Thanks. <laughs> Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, at first blush, this uh, would seem to be a very kind of cold and calculating kind of a game, a very mathy game, which, of course, would not be a surprise to people who are familiar with Dr. Kinesia's work. I mean, he's he's often been accused of, uh, you know, having like math the game. Um, and yet, you know, when I walked through the tournament uh, that you and my wife were taking part of at the WBC, uh, the, you know, the, the shouting, the laughter, the, uh, you know, the, the, the fun and excitement was really evident. And it was a bit of a surprise to me because I had only played it uh, iOS, you know, and uh, I had played the two-player version of this called Medici Strozzi. And, you know, that was very much a mind versus mind. My wife and I kind of staring at each other, almost like playing chicken. You know, who's going to blink first? Um, and so I really wasn't expecting that kind of a, a dynamic. I wasn't expecting that kind of uh, interaction and, and that kind of, as you say, you know, table talk, trash talk, metagaming, uh, trying to kind of, uh, 
you know, manipulate, as you said, people into thinking something was more valuable than it was or or trying to trick them into thinking that if they didn't bid highly for it, that you were going to snap it up, um, you know, because you had plans for it when actually you didn't. And you're just trying to get them to overcommit. Uh, you know, I don't think it can be overstated that there is only one currency in the game. So basically you're bidding with your victory points. You, you know, you, That's correct. you are, you know, spending your VPs to hopefully get a greater return on them. But you can overspend, which then can make it uh, really a, a bad deal for you. And so, uh, you know, that economy and, and the way that works is really kind of dynamic. So uh, I don't know why I was so surprised by that when I saw it live, uh, you know, people playing the game. But it, it really was a bit of a surprise to me. I was like, oh, wow, this isn't as dry as I thought it was. And my yeah. wife said she really enjoyed it. So, um, you know, one of the other things I noticed, though, Matt, is that while walking around that room, there were tables of people laughing and hollering and, and yelling and shouting and, and just having a great old time. And then there were tables that were just like dead silent, where everybody kind of had their head in their hands, you know, and kind of staring at this, uh, you know, central board that just looks like a death spiral. And they look like they were in a death spiral. Um, do you think there's I like a, that. That's yeah. viral. I like that. <laughs> do, do you think there's a right and a wrong way to play this game? Uh, it, it's funny that you say that because one of my many uh, one of my many nemesises or nemesi that I that I play this game with, and his name is Roger, and he maths out every single turn, and of course that just makes us pick on him more. But he talks, he talks through every turn. If I buy four for this, then I'll get this on that. And then I'll... And you're like, oh, come on, Roger. Um, <laughs> but Sounds like you're playing it, with Andy Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was like. So, uh, and you're right. At the tournament, I did have a, a round because I was fortunate enough to win my first game. I went to my second round, and I played with some very serious players. And they did not talk. And what was funny is two of them were Canadian from Quebec, and the only thing that they said was in French to each other. <laughs> so it just made it all the more serious somehow. I was very intimidated. Um, but uh, as far as the math goes, what's fun about this game and why I only recommend it with five or six players, I, four I suppose is passable, is there's 36 tiles in the game. And when you play with five, you remove six of them. So that gives it just enough randomness, I think, to keep it really, really fun. When you have perfect information with six players in every single tile, you have a very different tension-building situation because one of the tiles is this gold tile, and it's worth 10. The way that boats work is there's, there's two values. There is a quantity value, how many of a type you can get, and there's a quality value. You can get a very high-quality version of fur and a high-quality version of spices. Or you could just get a lot of spices. So when you have all 36 tiles, you get that gold tile, which is worth 10 in value. And the value gives you points for your boat, for your biggest boat. So most valuable boat is a lot of points. So when you have perfect information, you know that 10 tile is going to come out. And you know that if someone has three fives on their boat already, that if they get that 10 tile, there's no way 
that you you know they're not going to get biggest boat. So that's why I recommend the game mostly with six. Five is also very fun because you don't know if that ten is going to come out or not. You don't know if that other green five is going to come out. So I think both player counts are absolutely fabulous. I think once you get down to three and four, the game loses a lot because you're removing, I believe, six tiles per player at that point. Okay, all right. Uh, but as far as kind of like the spirit of the game, I mean, that that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to pick at a little bit here yeah. is, you know, is this game best when played vocally and raucously? Or is it best when played kind of uh, calculatingly and, uh, you know, very intensely? What, what would you say? Or are they both equally valuable? I, I, that's a great question. I, and I think the answer is yes to both. Because I know that there are players who love this game who play it very seriously. They, they, you know, they game it and they strategize and they play to win. For me... I mean, this is near. This is nearly a party game because it's it's probably the loudest and most uproarious game that we play because of the group that I play. That you know, that's they're used to playing it that way, and I and when I teach it, that's how I teach it. And so, it's for my own personality. This game should be you know kind of loud and with a lot of trash talk. I don't think that means it's people who play it seriously don't enjoy it as much. I think they enjoy it equally. But, I mean, when I sat at the table with those serious gamers at WBC, it was, you know, it certainly felt like I was a bit handcuffed. Okay. All right. So this is a game that is all about trying to kind of make sure that you don't overpay. Uh, You're looking for the bargain. But it's one of those games that I would describe as delicate because uh, it seems to me as though the economy of the game, very much like in a game uh, like Container, is really created and set by the players themselves. You know, as far as what people are really going to be willing to pay. You know, I've seen games uh, played where, um, you know, the economy is very small, you know, and, and people are not really paying as much as you might anticipate them to for larger lots because everyone is very conscious and concerned about the fact that money is victory points, right? And then I've also seen, you know, people who are willing to basically pay through the nose just to get a, a you know, five, six dollar basically a turnaround and the economy is, is, is tremendously inflated. And so what I mean by delicate is I've seen uh, and heard people talk about games of this when I've kind of like browsed through forums and listened to other people talk about it and with my own kind of limited experience uh, with this and also with Container, which I'm comparing the two directly, which if I'm wrong, you can feel free to tell me. But sometimes these games where the economy is set by the player can really kind of fall apart. I mean, if the table doesn't kind of come to an agreement things can sort of fall apart kind of rapidly. You know, someone can just be a total spoiler and undervalue something or overvalue something and make a ridiculous bid that makes no sense for them. And then people kind of get a little upset about that. So what would you say about the uh, about all of these assertions I'm making? Do you think there's anything to that? Is, is it a delicate game or no? Uh, yeah, I think it's important when you're teaching new people um, that first round, you play three rounds, um, that first round, you need to give them a sense because there's two, there's two things you're doing when you bid. 
you're bidding for yourself and you're bidding to deny other players. And so the real, the heart of the game is what is that next player's number? I mean, if I had to summarize the game, that's what it is. You have to spend the game thinking, what is that next player's number? And I have to find it. I have to find the number that I can live with that is too expensive for that guy because it, it, it will give him more points, but it won't really hurt me. So, yes, it is a delicate economy. This game, you, you can't really bid 20 on a lot that's worth five. Right. And if someone, and if someone does that, they're going to lose instantly because, because, you know, because of the weight and balance of the way you gain points. Um, so, I mean, it, it's funny. I have seen people go down to zero dollars to, to get a lot that, you know, say they had 25 and they spent it all and they, they got biggest boat and it's, you know, gave them 30. So, they netted five points. Right. So, you know, it's, it's one of those strange things. And what you said about uh, the players determining the economy, I've heard, that, I've heard that discussed in other podcasts about modern art, that they say that about modern art, that that game can really spiral out of control. Maybe it wasn't modern art. Maybe it was the, the one where you're making movies. I forget what the name of that one is. Ah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, is that Dream Factory or yes, something like that? I yeah. think it was, it was one of those that, you know, that can really go haywire if you have people paying a lot for stuff. Then in that situation, that's what they're worth, and that's the, the dynamic of the game has to shift. In this, it doesn't really work. That player simply will not do well. Okay. So, again, it goes back to teaching the game. You have to be open to a learn, you know, around to learn the game. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for uh, clarifying that for me because I was, uh, you know, a little concerned that it might be kind of a brittle kind of a game. All right. Next thing I want to kind of ask you about is, uh, and this is something I've become increasingly fascinated by, I would say, over the past year or so, is looking at games like this where the rule set itself is actually incredibly kind of straightforward and simple and yet the complexity comes through in how the game is played you know the the, the complexity comes in through the gameplay not from a very dense rule set and you know a lot of people have tossed around a lot of words for that you know they would say that that's kind of an old school concept uh you know people like to use the word like clean or elegant or something of that nature um, and, and I'm kind of finding that, you know, I'm drawn to some of these older titles uh, for exactly that reason. Because, you know, I kind of feel like we're living in a, a wonderful age. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad one. But we're living in an age of very dense games. You know, very complex games. Games that, uh, you know, are, are very daunting to learn or to play uh, the first few times. You know, one that leaps to mind is one that I'm probably going to review uh, after we're done recording here, um, which is Stefan Feld's Aquasphere. Um, my goodness, that game is... Uh, <laughs> that was I, the first one that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that game really has a lot of stuff going on, and I'm not even convinced that I like it yet. Um, it, it's just there's so many things and so many moving parts. You know, this is quite simple. You, uh, you know, flip some cards or you pull some chits um, and you, you make your lots and people bid and that's it. Like it's, it's not all that complicated and yet there's a lot of really important decisions that need to be made during the course of the game. So 
Uh, what would you have to say, uh, you know, about that? Is part of the draw for this game for you that simplicity, or uh, do you disagree? All right, I'm fascinated by this question, Jeff, um, and I couldn't agree with you more about um, complexity versus simplicity. And I was listening to the Ludology podcast not long ago, and they did a whole episode about Kinesia, and they talked specifically about the elements of his games that um, that have all of these attributes. And I think Aquasphere is a great example. Right behind the Medici and probably my top five games is Trajan. Um, I love Steffenfeld. Oh, I love but that when you too, sit yeah. down, But when you sit down to teach these games, um, it, you know, it's people, you, your eyes just roll back in their heads. Uh, <laughs> Dungeon Pets is another one. It's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's an hour and a half to teach it. So uh, I, I think an example of a similar, a simpler um, game that you actually talked about uh, in your year end was 1775. Right. That, that game is so accessible and so simple to get into that um, I love what you talked about, you know, your new modern classics. Um, but back to Medici, uh, uh, yes, the simplicity of this game uh, does absolutely make it attractive. And what's funny about this game for me and my experience has been I've sat down with Ameritrashers. I've sat down with war gamers. Uh, my friend, uh, you know, that I played games with from high school. We used to play D&D together. I taught him this game. And it's, it's a hit for everyone that I've sat down and taught it to. Now, again, I, I teach it like, you know, it's, uh, you know, kind of a loud and trash-talking kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and it really has been accessible for everybody. It's been nice. So, you know, as a person who is a fan of Stefan Feld and a fan of Reiner Knizia, what I'd like you to do is talk a little bit about those two worlds, right? So you mentioned Trajan, which is one of my favorite games, okay? And yep. I couldn't agree with you more. That game is incredibly dense and difficult to teach, and it's often very difficult to know what you should be doing. Whereas Medici right. is much more straightforward. So I guess what I want to pick at here with you a little bit is, is one deeper than the other? Does one have more depth or replayability? Um, you know, is one just shrouded in complexity to make it appear uh, deep strategically uh, and tactically? And the other is just stripped clean and, you know, just this little bright jewel? Or are they both equal? Or, you know, what would you have to say about that? Wow, that is an awesome question and, and one that I really have to kind of pause and think about. I, I think, you know, the first analogy that leaps into my brain is you're hungry and you want to sit down and eat, you know, steak and potatoes and three other sides and then have a milkshake for dessert. That's, <laughs> that's, that's Trajan to me. Right. Um, you know, and if you want, you know, one of your favorite salads, that would be Medici. You know, you, you love them both equally. But it's all about what you're in the mood for. Uh, but, you know, it's tough. I think, I think we may be in the minority in that be, as fans of both games. I don't know that, that, would, that many fans of Trajan would go for this game, but I, I could be wrong there. I don't know. What do you think? 
Well, you know, it's it's an interesting idea, and I think there's probably quite a few uh, who are probably fans of both because, as you kind of indicated with your answer, uh, a lot of gamers that I talk to, you know, things are situational. You know, um, I'm going to pull out a game with my, you know, game group, you know, of my buds who really love heavy, thick, you know, meaty kind of games. And then there's going to be games I'm going to pull out, um, you know, for other people who I know who like to game but aren't really up for, uh, you know, a long kind of a, a heavy experience, right? So I think that's part of it. I think, you know, that situations is is important when you're kind of looking at it. I mean, I used to love that segment on... Uh, I think it was Game On with Cody and John, the, the game sommelier. You know, I used to love that segment where, you know, you try to match a game to a, to a situation. Um, but I, I guess what I'm really kind of trying to figure out is, is, you know, is Medici equally strategic as something more complex? In other words, you know, I think about Tigris and Euphrates. That's a pretty simple game at heart by today's standards. By modern standards, it's fairly simple. Uh, there's some complexity in the conflict rules, whether it's internal, external, but it's a pretty straightforward game, but there's a lot of strategic depth in that game. I would argue, um, is there a lot of strategic depth in, in Medici? I think I would answer it this way. I would say that when I play Trajan, I will sit and I will stare at that board and I will not care how much AP the other players have to suffer through. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to figure out my optimum move. In Medici, the fun for me is the gamble. It's if I overpay for this now, will that pay off in the long run? I could sit and map that out. But I have more fun kind of playing Medici by the seat of my pants. Okay. All right. That sounds. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah. So, so if you're, but if you want to math it out, you're saying you feel the the depth is there. But yeah. if you are willing to kind of play it a little looser, um, a little more right. in the moment, or or whatever you want to call it, then yeah. that's kind of more the seat of your pants style. Yes. Yes. And that's how I prefer to play it. And like I said, I have played this game with people who who do really do sit and and figure all the numbers out. Right. Right. Um, okay, well, while we're talking about AP, um, what would you say about that in this game? You know, I find a lot of times with auction games, there can be a lot of agonizing over what kind of bid to make, in particular in games where it's a once-around bid. You know, you would yeah. think that that would make it better because it's only once-around, but I think a lot of people... Um, feel a little more comfortable in the you bid until you pass kind of auction um, because then they kind of don't feel like they have to figure out that exact yeah. value, you know? So would you say that the once-around kind of style of auction in this game uh, is what makes it kind of brain-burnery or no? Uh, I think that's what makes this game as wonderful as it is. I think that's where all of the tension and excitement comes from. Um, I've never had a person really get bogged down with this. I've had them think, and I think what keeps them from taking an overly long turn is the fact that the table is all offering their opinion. And whether, for good, for better, or for worse, that person who's trying to think, what's the number? What's the number? What's the number? Everyone's like, oh, you know, 
13. 13 is a good number. I, I go 13. <laughs> and so, by, by, you know, by that point, they, you know, it's, it, we're not necessarily polite in this game to let people think. And again, I told you about my friend Roger, who just talks out loud to himself. He'll right. say, oh, okay, well, four, I'm give me five, and five, and if I do six, and then seven. <laughs> so he'll do it all. He'll just talk it out, and we all just, you know, give him even that much harder time because of it. But he wins, usually, so who am I to say anything? <laughs> oh, my uh, goodness. So, uh, you know, this game sounds like it has all of those kind of hallmarks of uh, a classic because it's got a, a simple rule set, a lot of uh, player interaction, a, uh, a good amount of depth of strategy. Um, it has some innovative mechanics, such as uh, we've already talked about, you know, the once-around auction. And uh, my favorite part of the game, the fact that uh, the person who puts up the lot gets last bid. So, you know, that, that's really kind of neat. Uh, I like that idea um, because that makes it so that if there is something that I really feel is kind of do or die for me when I'm putting up that lot, I know if it's my turn, I am going to have, for better or worse, the opportunity to get that if I really, really want it. And that, to me, is also one of the hardest points in the game is when I've got that lot that I know I desperately want. You know, I got the, the spice and, and, you know, I've got everything and that's going to that's gonna be perfect for me. And yet I'm going to be very tempted to overpay for it because I know that the hammer's in my hand, you know? And yeah. do I really let that hammer go? Do I put it down and walk away? You know, it's kind of like going in and negotiating for a car, you know? It's like, yeah. you got to be prepared to walk away. <laughs> but, you know, I don't really want to walk away, and I don't want to give up my advantage because, you know, I, 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 might not, I, I might not have that advantage ever again, you know? So, um, you know, I kind of find that's one of the best parts of the game. Um you know, th all these things to me kind of add up to, you know, the reason why this game has been around for so long and why it's so highly regarded. Yet I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts about why then is this thing out of print? I know. I'm hoping that, you know, the, the secret news that Tiger's New Fazies was getting reprinted and that kind of came as a surprise recently. I'm hoping somebody has, you know, does the same with this one. Um, but a quick story about what you were just saying about this game uh, when I, the first time I ever played it, my friend Bob taught it. And he said, here's, here's all of the rules you need to know in this game. Pass. <laughs> That's how he taught me the game. And, I, I, you know, of course, I had no idea what he was talking about. And then the game started. And every single turn, he passed. And it's funny, because I'm just now starting to play Raw more. And my friend plays the bag. He likes to play the bag in Raw, meaning everybody else goes out mm -hmm. and he just plays the bag in Raw and sees what happens. You can play the bag in Medici, which, I mean, it's a deck, it's a bag for me, but it's a deck in other versions, and you can see what happens. And that is so much fun to sit and pull those tiles out of the bag, knowing you're going to get it for free, but it could be absolutely useless. Right, right. And th those provide some of the most amazing moments uh, in this game that, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just fantastic. Um, go ahead. No, no, I, I was just kind of curious as you said that I was thinking like, okay, playing the bag in raw though. I mean, at least with Medici, you're going to get something most of the time. Right. Um, but in raw, you can, I, I've tried to play the bag in raw and what do I do? I keep drawing raw tiles. <laughs> <And then laughs> yeah. I get 
nothing. You know what I mean? Yep. And so yep. uh, that's one of the things about, you know, Ra that, uh, you know, to me can be immensely uh, exciting, but also incredibly frustrating where you can really feel like, you know, it's just nothing but bad luck for you. But in Medici, you do have that fun of, you know, hey, if you've passed out, um, you know, you can just kind of uh, draw and, and sometimes you get something amazing. I remember one time uh, I drew that gold tile you were talking about. It just fell into my lap. Yep. And I yep. was like, woo, looky here, you know. And so that can be a lot of fun. That can be very exciting. Um, but, I, you know, I am kind of curious if you think that the reason this game has kind of, if it's so highly regarded, this is one of those cases where I wonder sometimes if the graphic design of the game actually has hurt the game. Because I don't really care what version you look at. Most of them look pretty dry, boring, and some of the designs have just been kind of unattractive. Do you think the graphic Unbe- design? Yeah, do you think that's hurt the game at all? I think it. I think it hurts it immensely. It's. Uh, it's. It's. I mean, this game is the poster child for what design can do for a game. Uh, I have. I was able to get the French version, which is attractive to look at, but. Um, Still not perfect. Uh, I mean, the Rio Grande one is the most uh, probably popular and common one that I've seen. I know that I, I don't know what to say about it. It's there's four versions of this game. Every one is worse than the next, and it's <laughs> and, it, and it's a horrible it's a horrible shame, especially because you know this is the theme, of course, that is notorious for trading in the Mediterranean, right? Right, right. right. But this game really, really has a is very thematic. When you, when you think about the idea of all of these traders sailing their ships to a dock, having these vendors, these other traders, selling their goods, you know, we're all competing to get the best goods, and then we have to sail home and sell those goods, and goods may or may not have been dumped into the ocean because they were so they were just not desirable enough. Right. I think thematically this game is fantastic. Um, but, man, you are right about the design. And like I said, the scowling, cranky guy on the cover. I don't know, you know. You just, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this, though, because uh, you, you, you just said something that I found interesting, which is, you know, you feel this game is wholly thematic. And Absolutely. my question is, is this the most thematic Kinesia game? Uh you know, the, oh God, the discussion of theme, you know, is so extensive and so many people have had it. Right. Um, I could talk theme into Lost Cities easily. Oh, no. Yes. No. Easily. <laughs> no. Investors and money and, and knowledge and experience. Uh, yes. Uh, but not the most thematic. Um, I, I would say this probably would be uh, at the top of my head. I, I mean... Modern art's another auction game, and you're actually auctioning off art. Right, so right. Possibly that could be argued, but I, I I would say this is a very very thematic Kinesia game. Yes. You know, I think it's probably one of the ones that the the theme is is the most visible. I would say. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to yeah. think of another game of his where the theme is as out front. As it is, well, the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings co-op game, I think, is probably his most. Well, you right? know, you you could have a point there. Um, you know, that one is is definitely thematic, 
but it's it's thematic in an abstract way. Exactly. Uh, you know, um, moving through the boards is very thematic. It's very sort of linear. It gives you that feeling of progressing through the stories. Um, yeah. And then you have that wonderful little track with the you know the 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 shadow token moving closer and closer towards the fellowship. That feels very thematic. I think it's interesting because to me that game does not play thematically at all. There's nothing thematic about it. You know, I'm I'm turning in cards, I'm contributing cards towards trying to overcome these threats and these obstacles and we all have to work together uh, and then we progress from board to board while the shadow is moving closer and and it's all very mechanical. However, right. very interestingly to me it feels very thematic like i feel the doom creeping closer when i'm playing it i feel the cooperation and the sacrifice that players make when they contribute their cards and it's interesting to me that a guy who's so renowned for being so mathy is mm. able to create a game that is is kind of mechanical on its surface but it feels very thematic right. and i guess that's a little different than what i'm talking about with medici where it's kind of like right there on top. Like you said, it's very, very overt. It's like, hey, your stuff is being unloaded from ships, and you're mm -hmm. going to buy it. You're going to load it on your ship, and you're going to hope to take it somewhere else and make a profit, you know? Sure. And, it's Pawn Stars. You yeah. could retheme it as Pawn Stars. <laughs> yeah, Not Pawn Stars. Could. The other one. What's the other one with the... Uh, um, oh, jeez. It's the, the lockers. <laughs> with the what? <laughs> The, the lockers when they, the they lockers. buy bid on the lots in the storage lockers. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Okay, storage <laughs> wars, I think, or something. It's yeah, called. storage yeah, wars. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, that, all right. They could retheme it. Yeah, they probably could because that's kind of what it is. Um, and of course, modern art. I think you made a good case for that being uh, thematic as well. You know, but there's so many of his games that I really feel like you have to search for the theme. Um, I, I will respectfully disagree with you. I, I don't find Lost Cities thematic at all. Yeah. Um, however, I have found lots of thematic elements in Tigris and Euphrates. Um, right. This one really seems to kind of come right out and grab you, and yet the presentation of the game is rather dry and mathy. But the the kind of uh, feel of the game and the goal of the game, I, I was reading where someone said that the they always feel a game is thematic if what they're doing in the game matches your expectation for. I'm trying to remember who it was, but they said like if the if the the actions you're taking in the game match the sort of thematic um, uh, narrative, you know, that the, that the game designer is trying to make, then the game feels thematic. If it doesn't, you know, if the mechanics don't really inter aren't interwoven with the theme, then it doesn't, there's a disconnect there. And, right, which you know, that, that's kind of the way I feel about Aquasphere, quite honestly. I kind of feel mm -hmm. like, all right, I have this scientist and they're programming these robots to go induce why why is this why can I only do these things on this board in a certain way? Why can't I go and program that over there? Why am I stuck with only going to these certain areas? You know, so there's Burning. there's things where when the mechanics don't really match, then I feel a disconnect to the theme. But in the case of Medici, as you said, I feel the theme is wholly connected, yes? I think one of the problems is that the theme of this game, as, as wonderfully as it's implemented, is trading in the Mediterranean, which generally 
isn't a theme people get excited about. So uh, I think that's that's part of it. But um, I, I I think it's an easy theme to get into because of the wheeling and the dealing and uh, you know you know everybody's got their hands up in the air and they're all yelling and um, you know as I said you know already several times is it's it's easy for my for my group to get into this one uh, pretty easily. You know, this game feels a lot to me like, I don't know if you've ever played it, but this feels a lot like Chinatown to me. You know, the, the same kind I'm of not. thing where, you know, I, I you're everyone has something that everybody else wants, and there's a lot of negotiating and wheeling and dealing. Um, you know, Chinatown is much more freeform. Um, you know, you are directly trading things with each other rather than just trying to outbid each other. But the, that kind mm-hmm. of feel of... Um, that wheeling and dealing and, and table talk and uh, intimidation and, um, you know, and by intimidation, I mean, you know, uh, with your bid, you know, or intimidation with, uh, you know, I'm telling you, you know, if you bid, you outbid me on this good, I know you want this, and later on I'm going to be willing to bust the bank for that. So you might want to think about that. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of, like, moments like that in Medici, and, and you get that sometimes in Chinatown as well. Have you had a chance to play that one? I have not played Chinatown, but I did want to talk about the the aspect of Medici that we touched on briefly um, earlier, which was when stuff gets tossed into the ocean. Right. Because this is one of another one of those moments that builds so much tension into this game. Okay, so if I pull a lot and it has a very low value uh, and is not and, and is not the colors that anybody is particularly interested in. I could pull it, and the whole table can pass on it. And if the whole table passes on it, the, the person who pulled it tosses it in the ocean, which means you know you give the players one last look at those tiles, and then you put them face down in the middle of the table. So now you have to remember, because remember, it's a perfect information game, what colors and what numbers are no longer in the bag. Um, but if you throw too many tiles in the ocean, then someone's not going to get a full boat. And that builds so much tension into the game because, uh, you know, biggest boat could be a very, very close race. And if someone doesn't get that last tile on board, it could make or break, it could make or break their score. So just wanted to kind of reiterate that because it's, it's so much fun when that happens. Right, right. And just to kind of give people an idea, I mean, you're, you're basically getting points for the goods that you are selling, you know, or that, that you're going to put on your boat, but you're yep. also uh, getting points for having the, the the most, you know, the highest valued ship, right? So right. can you tell people, you know, and, and maybe kind of uh, this might open up a little discussion about general playing tips for this game, but, you know, what percentage of the, the sort of points that you would expect to score in a game are coming from those boats? Are we talking about uh, something that's just going to tip the balance in a tightly contested game? Or is you know uh, there a, a strategy whereby you just focus every round of the three rounds on trying to have uh, you know the, the biggest boat so that you get that bonus? Is that enough to kind of help you win the game? Even if you're not going to be getting some of those bonuses for having um, you know, uh, acquired... Uh, large numbers of the same type of good, for example, because as you acquire more and more, you kind of move up this little track, and that's going to be right. worth bonus points for you at the end as well. So, you know, what would you say about the importance of that boat bonus? And maybe give us a little bit more info on that. And then kind of also maybe tell us a little bit of, of general 
play strategies other than pass that you might give to a new player? <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is fascinating, and to me, this is really where you kind of see Kinesius genius because of how perfectly he has has assigned these values to these different methods of scoring. Okay. So the goods that you're putting on your boat are numbered zero to five. And there are five goods and the tiles are zero, one, two, three, four, five, and five. There are two fives of each good. So you have Six tiles, seven tiles of each color times five plus the gold, 36 tiles. So you put these tiles on your boat, then you add up those numbers. Whoever's number is the biggest gets the most points. But in a six-player game, five players get points based on that value. So first, second, third, fourth, and fifth will all get you know, descending amounts of points. So that's one way to get points. The other way to get points is by climbing these goods tracks. And these good tracks, there's one track for each good. So if you have a lot of fur, if you have many tiles that are, you know, fur is, is the good type, you will get 10 points at the end of the round if you have the most fur. So there's five goods. They all score 10 points for first and five points for second. So you have all of these points available, and so you're constantly prioritizing. Well, I have a blue five. That was my first thing that I got. I have it on my boat. It's a blue five. But this lot is a blue zero and a blue one. Right. Nobody else, want, you know, nobody else wants it, so do I pay a dollar for it? Because it's probably going to give me a small boat, but it will give me three blues. So you're constantly weighing the value of these things, which is why you sit and stare at that player and say, all right, what's the number? Because if I don't want blue, but I know that Billy wants blue, I have to look at Billy and say, all right, what's Billy's number? What's he going to pay for this? And it's absolutely fascinating, the psychology of it. It's very, very fun. So that's what you need to be focusing on as a new player in this game is how those points are scored. So even though the game is simple, based on you know other games that we in the hobby know of and play, for new players, you, it's important that they understand how the game is scored as they get into it. Because that's, how, that's everything about how you determine the value of each good and what you're willing to bid. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, you know, and thanks for offering up those tips, because like a lot of Kinesia games, it really is all about the scoring, isn't it? I mean... Uh, Lost Cities is all about the scoring and you know you have to hit your target number or you're at negative points and yeah yeah you know and and you need those handshakes if you're gonna you know score serious points um you know and the same thing for Tigers and Euphrates I mean that was one of his most brilliant innovations which is your score is the least of what you've collected you know um so it, it doesn't surprise me that scoring is so important in this game 
And it's, it's also something that can be difficult to wrap your mind around. I know it can be in all of his games that I played. Uh, you know, Amon, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Amon Ray. And, Amon, uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the scoring is really crucial. And I think that's kind of where he shines as a designer. So thanks for clarifying that. I think that's, that's good advice for new players. Uh, you know, I, I would yeah. certainly uh, uh, listen to that. So um, trying to understand that overall scoring is crucially important. So, well, you know, yeah. Matt, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me tonight uh, while we are uh, sitting here recording on uh, January 26th, I think it is, uh, in yep. this mighty blizzard uh, that you all are facing in New England. And uh, yep. I, I'm glad the power stayed with us. And I'm glad that you were able to take some time out and uh, from, you know, going and shopping for milk and bread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it had to be milk done. It had bread. to be done. Milk and bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's the milk oh, part my. that really fascinates me because when the power goes out, <laughs> milk is the first thing that goes. You know, I don't, exactly. I don't really exactly. know why milk is so. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me tonight and talk about, uh, you know, this this great old classic game medici yes thank you jeff it's it's one of my favorites and thank you to the listeners thank you for your patience i know you're all thinking things that you want to say and uh all i can say is you know i'm happy to discuss this game with anyone at any level so uh you know feel free to email me or whatever Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I'm sure Matt will uh, be monitoring the uh, thread when I post yep. the episode and we'll be able to kind of talk as the expert between the two of us uh, about any yep. questions that people might have or comments about it. So uh, thanks to you, Matt, and uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I hope you have a great night. Thank you, Jeff. Now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So in today's quick look, uh, the game that we're going to be taking a peek at today is a new one from Eagle Griffin Games. This is Roll Through the Ages, the Iron Age. Uh, this is designed by Tom Lehman, uh, published by Eagle Griffin. It just came out 2014. It is for one to four players and says a playing time about 30 minutes um, for uh, people about eight years and up. Uh, and all of that is pretty accurate. I think the play time might be a little bit longer than that, uh, depending on the version of the game that you're going to be playing. So a little bit about that. Um, this is a copy of the game that was sent to me by Eagle Griffin uh, as a review copy, so you need to keep that in mind. Um, and more importantly, this is a copy that was sent to me that includes the Mediterranean expansion. Now, for those people who aren't familiar with uh, the difference between uh, the Iron Age and then the Iron Age with Mediterranean expansion, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a bit. For now, we'll be focusing on what this new title has to offer. So many people are familiar with uh, Roll Through the Ages, which is a Matt Leacock design, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and this is a game that came out a while ago, uh, and it used these kind of uh, wooden pegboards and wooden dice, uh, really kind of pretty to look at. And it was basically a Yahtzee kind of style game where you rolled the dice that you had up to three times uh, with one face that kind of depicted a skull that would kind of lock that die so that you couldn't continue to roll 
solid. And the rest of the time, uh, you know, any other face is showing, you could either keep what you rolled or you could continue to choose to roll. And the rolls were important because it kind of drove the game. It was the engine of the game. Um, so, for example, you could roll the dice and you could collect goods, um, you know, that you could then use and trade in or sell, if you want to think of it that way, in order to kind of gain advancements or developments, which would help your civilization grow and thrive. So, you know, that was one face. Um, you know, another face uh, might show a symbol for food. And so, you know, food is very important because you have to be able to feed your people, of course. Otherwise, things don't go very well for you and you'll kind of lose points through what they call disaster points. And then there are people people who are depicted on the dice as well and these people represent the kind of workforce you know that the the population that you have and what they're going to be working on and you could use them to build more cities or you could use them to build monuments to your civilization or what have you and so the original game uh, was a you know fun game made quite a splash when it first came out uh, people really seem to enjoy it I still have a copy of it in my collection uh, although it's a game that hasn't really hit the table much recently so uh, you know, all that kind of had my curiosity peaked when I heard that there was another kind of sequel to Roll Through the Ages coming out, and this was going to be the Iron Age. Now, add to that the fact that this is Tom Lehman who's going to be doing this game, and that, that had me really intrigued, because, of course, I'm very familiar with a lot of his games, a big fan of Race for the Galaxy, and games like that. So, um, this is one that I, I definitely was kind of curious about. And I was also kind of curious to see what new things they might do with the system. So, uh, when I had the chance to check out the game, uh, it seemed to me as though quite a lot of changes had been made. There was now the opportunity for you to actually have ships and to have an army um, which was not present in the original version of the game and that kind of had me intrigued and then there was this idea of tribute and you can collect tribute by either conquering sort of a, a generic kind of uh, foe um, or you could gather tribute from the other players directly at the table if your military strength was greater than theirs. I thought oh okay so there's a little bit of interaction here and that kind of had me uh, kind of thinking this might be kind of fun. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of had me curious, but honestly, what kind of put me over the top was this idea of this map. So there's this beautiful wooden pegboard kind of map that depicts the Mediterranean. And uh, what the description said was that this was going to give players the opportunity to build colonies. And I thought, oh, okay. All right, now I'm really kind of I'm, I'm psyched about this. So, um, you know, I asked if Eagle Griffin would be willing to send me a uh, copy, and they were nice enough to do so. And so I dove right into it immediately and, uh, you know, checked it out. So uh, here's kind of what I kind of think about the game and a little bit about how the game is played. So in this version of the game, okay, this sort of, uh, it's not an expansion, it's a standalone. Um, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be rolling those beautiful wooden dice again, okay? Uh, this time what you have is the addition of what's called a fate die. And this fate die is going to be rolled on every turn as well by every player. And what the fate die does is a little bit different than your other dice. Your other dice faces have also changed a little bit. So you still have the food symbol, you have the population symbol of, with uh, showing three people. And you also have the die that shows two food, two people. And you also still have a side of your dice that shows a skull symbol, okay? And this is going to be used to indicate that there's maybe some misfortune or some disasters that have befallen your 
uh, you know, little civilization. So uh, that's all kind of still the same. However, what has changed is that in the uh, original version of the game, the skull symbol was kind of uh, bookended by two kind of half urns, and that kind of lets you know that you were going to get goods uh, as kind of compensation for rolling those skulls. Well, now on one side is a urn uh, depicting a good, and the other side is a person. So now your kind of compensation for rolling a skull die is you get a person, and you get one good instead of two goods. So that was a little bit of a, a difference. Um, in addition, you have a totally new face now. So the new face shows a picture of an urn, uh, or an ampora, if you want to think of it that way. I'm not sure exactly what it's supposed to be, but it's a, you know, a vessel that is depicting goods, okay, things that your civilization is going to produce and sell. And it has a little anchor symbol on it. Now this one's very interesting because what this does is this is the main way you now produce goods in the game. When you produce goods, there's now only one generic good. There's not that sort of level. You know, you're not looking to make cloth or spears, you know, weapons, or uh, you're not looking to collect wood or stone. There's none of that anymore. It's just one generic good, and that's all you're going to be collecting. And those goods are going to be used, just like in the original game, to kind of trade in uh, for developments that you might want. Well, the generic goods now are all kind of uh, symboled, uh, symbolized by this face on the die. And the way you collect most of your goods, you might get some on disaster dice, but most of your goods are going to be collected when you roll that symbol showing the good symbol and the anchor. And that's tied to ports. Now, ports is something completely different in this game. And quite frankly, it's one of the things that I really like about it. So instead of just having cities that you're building in your civilization, you now have a choice of building two things. You can build what are called provinces, which are going to give you population um, in your army, and they're going to give you tribute. Okay, so every new kind of province that you take over as your civilization, you're going to get tribute and you're going to get more people for your army. On the other hand, you can expend some of your goods and some of your population in order to build a port. And so what the ports do is they're going to get you those goods. They're kind of going to be your center of trade, which kind of makes sense thematically. So what that means is when you roll that port um, good symbol on your die, you're going to collect one good for every port that you have. So if I have four ports uh, later in the game, I'm going to be collecting four goods every time I roll that face. And if I roll it on two separate dice, boy, I mean, I could collect eight goods or more in one turn, no problem. So ports are really, really powerful. Uh, ports are also essential because they're going to give you those goods that are going to allow you to buy the developments that you need in order to, you know, kind of gain advantages and gain special abilities throughout the course of the game. And that's very similar to what you had in the original Roll Through the Ages. Now, the other interesting thing about ports is that ports don't require food. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I'm going to thematically kind of go out on a limb and say, um, you know, they're kind of self-sustaining little communities because of all the business and trade. I'm going to say that they don't need it maybe because there's all the fishing nearby. You know, I don't know. What I do know is that the provinces need to be fed every turn, but the ports don't. However, there is a little bit of a trade-off there because the provinces are what are going to give you, quite frankly, your best, quickest bump to your armies, and they're going to give you straight tribute points. And tribute points in this game are straight victory points. So I've heard a lot of people writing early on in this game that, oh, well, the ports is the way to go. Ports is the way to go. Uh, well, I've seen games won with provinces, and I've seen games won with ports. I, I don't know that one is necessarily more dominant than the other, once you kind of fully grasp those two main forking kind of paths. 
So that's kind of a, an interesting change. Also, you have the ability to store your goods now. So what you can do is instead of your goods um, kind of being worth these differing values, like getting increasing in value, like the stone was worth more than wood and cloth was worth more than stone in the original, now what you have is just a very simplified kind of economic system where the number of goods you have is going to buy you developments, and the developments are... Um, little bit cheaper you know a little bit uh, easier to purchase in the beginning but what you can do is at the end of your turn you can make the choice to take four of your goods and you can store them as one wealth and wealth is kind of symbolized by this little gold bar symbol and what the wealth does is it gives you a return of five so this is a way to kind of get a little bit of interest right so four gets you five when it comes time for you to then go and buy your development so that's kind of nifty too however if you keep converting all of your goods into wealth, that's going to really help you with developments, but you do need goods in order to build more ports, and you need goods in order to build ships. And ships are really important, especially when you're using the Mediterranean expansion. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So overall, what you have is a streamlined system for goods. You have the addition of the Fate Die, which is going to give you the opportunity to fight against a sort of generic foe um, in order to go and gain some of those tribute points, which is going to be straight VPs. You also have the ability to demand tribute from other players, so there's a little bit of in-your-face in this game. It's not quite as solitary as the original was, and that's kind of neat, too. You have to keep an eye on the military strength of all the other players so that you can, you know, make it so that you're not going to give your opponent the opportunity to gain a ton of points by demanding tribute from you. So that's kind of neat. There's also a die face on the fate die, which is kind of nifty, which is an omen. And that's going to let you turn any die that you rolled, even one that was a skull, which normally you can't touch. It's going to allow you to turn and rotate that to any face that you want or any other die to any face that you want. So maybe I've got two skulls and I want a third so I can send a little pestilence my opponent's ways. Well, now I can do that, right? So there's all of these different options that are available now with that fate die, in particular with the omen face. So that's kind of a really neat addition too because it gives you a little bit of control sometimes over the dice, which is so needed in a game that's basically driven by chucking dice, right? So that's a really interesting addition. Then you have the idea of, uh, you know, the ships and the ports and the provinces, and that's all kind of new and fresh. But honestly, I, I would have enjoyed playing this game for a while, but I think it probably would have ended up in the same position as the original Roll Through the Ages, which, you know, is after 15, 20 plays, I'd probably be done with it. What really kind of bumps this game up a level for me is that Mediterranean expansion. So we're going to talk about that now. Now this was something that you could get the game with the Mediterranean expansion or without it. And I'm going to say that I recommend this game, I like the game, just as is. But with the Mediterranean expansion, I really like it. Um, and that's because it gives you just one more thing to think about. One more area to consider. Because what you're able to do now is you're able to use population and your ships that you're building to go out and claim colonies. And every colony that you make on this Mediterranean map board, which is gorgeous, by the way, every colony that you make is going to be worth three victory points at the end of the game. So right there, that incentivizes you to go out and do it. 
However, there are also symbols for many of the colonies, and they might give you a bonus good, or they might give you a bonus ship, or they might give you uh, some more army strength, or food, or, or what have you, right? So all of these different colonies will also give you these neat little one-time benefits, which is kind of neat as well. In addition, some of the colonies are tagged with little symbols, like little mine symbols, looks like a little pickaxe, and that's actually tied to a development, and that development means that for every one of the colonies that you have with that symbol, you're going to get more bonus points, and then there's another kind of uh, development that you can buy during the game that'll be tied to those colonies, the number of colonies you have, you'll get even more points for that. So there's kind of this interesting colony strategy that you can try to go for. So in the base game, you have like two major paths, which is provinces and tribute versus ports and developments, right? Well, now with this, you have this addition of colonies, right? So now you have ships and colonies as kind of a, another third kind of tying of the fork. And this is going to give you another kind of path and avenue to explore, but also one that you have to be wary of and careful of when you're watching your opponents. You can't just let one person dominate the colony board or they're going to completely crush you in the game. So... I heard a review by Eric Summer, um, you know, and Eric's a great guy. I, you know, enjoy gaming with him. Uh, I, I've had a chance to play, I think, a couple with him over the years. He's a great guy to talk to. I have to respectfully disagree with him on this review, though. He, you know, he kind of felt that this game maybe was too much for the system. Like, it was trying to make the game more than it should have been, or it was just adding a little bit too much to the game and it was taking it away from what it was supposed to be. And I kind of have to disagree with that because I think that actually the Mediterranean board and the other modifications to the system give you other things that you can do on your turn. Your turns are not so obvious anymore. So when I roll my dice and I'm thinking about how am I going to spend my goods, it's now not just about what development am I saving up for? Now it's about, okay, well, I could save up those goods for this development, which I really would like. But Tina's over there and she's getting ready to, I see she's building up some ships. I think she's getting ready to go and grab some colonies. And I was originally thinking about getting metallurgy, which was going to give me a bonus for the colonies with mines. Maybe I'll use some of these goods to you know, go and build a ship so that I can go next turn if she doesn't and try to claim that colony. Or maybe I'll use these goods to try to build another port because if I build another port, I don't have to feed it and I'm going to be getting more goods now because I'm kind of going towards this good strategy and I'm thinking about that colony board. I got to keep up with that. So it kind of gives you a lot of things to sort of think about, you know, you, you've got decisions to be made with the goods that you get. It's not as obvious. Uh, that fate die adds some interesting choices. You know, do I build up a large army so that as I roll that tribute or that omen face and I turn and I'm collecting tribute from other players, that's just straight victory points. And you know what? If they don't want to give me victory points, they got to give me goods. And that's okay because I can turn those goods into ships and go and claim more colonies. So it, it's really kind of neat. Um, there's just a lot of different things that you can consider. And so your turns are a little more interesting. It's not just see what you got with the dice and then do the best possible thing with them. Now you actually have some things that you have to think about and some decisions to make. And I feel that those decisions are much more interesting with the Mediterranean map than without it. So, um, you know, I have to kind of respectfully disagree with Eric on that one. I really like this. I think that that added complexity actually bumps the game up into something that I'm more interested in playing than just a straight 
roll through the ages, the Bronze Age, or even just the roll through the ages, the Iron Age. You know, the, the Iron Age adds some neat things. It streamlines some fiddly kind of parts and pieces before that I wasn't particularly fond of. And now, it you know, it, it, it kind of makes it a little bit better. But with the Mediterranean map, it really kind of bumps it up now to something that I'm much more likely to actively seek out to play. Um, you know, the, the only downside that I can say that I have with the game. Oh, and by the way, the little pegs fit in the boards much better uh, than they did in, in the original. Um, the only downside that I can say is that when you're playing a four-player game, you can have a little bit of a problem with downtime because there are things to think about now. There's decisions that you have to make. You know, deciding how to spend my population. Am I going to get a province? Am I going to use them for a colony? Am I, you know, I mean, what, what am I going to do with these people? Am I going to use them for army? You can actually spend your population in excess food to make yourself more armies. So there's actually just decisions to be made. And so what I find is that, you know, you do in a four player game have some downtime issues where people are really kind of considering what it is they want to do. And so there are ways to speed that up. You can kind of, you know, when they're doing their kind of bookkeeping phase, you can sort of simultaneously say, okay, well, you know what your dice are. You know what you have to work with. I'm going to start my turn now. But a lot of times you don't want to do that because you want to see what they did. You want to see what they're gearing up for. You want to see what they're doing. Are they saving their goods? Or are they spending their goods on ships and ports? You know, are they spending their population on finishing that monument? Or are they going to be starting something else? You know, what are they doing? So, you know, are they making more army? Uh, if they make their army more powerful, now i got to worry about tribute. I might have to do something about that on my turn. So you can't really, I don't know that it's the best thing for you to do to just kind of do simultaneous turns and then you're kind of surprised by your opponents. I think that kind of takes away a little bit from the decision-making process. But because you're talking about all these different kind of variables, there can be some downtime issues. So I've played the game where... It's really hummed along and it's gone really quickly and I've played the game where it's been kind of slow and it really depends on the players that you're playing with. So if you're you know, playing with some people that are going to be very deliberate and you know, like to consider their options really fully, it's probably going to drag a little bit at a four-player count. That's really the only downside that I can say. Otherwise, the game is beautifully manufactured. The wooden pegboards are awesome. The dice are great. Um, I just really love everything about it, to be honest with you, um, especially that Mediterranean board. The insert's nice, the way it holds everything. I mean, they did a really nice job on this game. It's one that I think is, uh, you know, made with a lot of quality, a lot of attention to detail. And, you know, the gameplay, I got to tell you, I think is really fun. It's very engaging. And I think it's a game that's going to stick around in my collection for a while because it takes all of the things that I liked about Roll Through the Ages and it just it just blanket improves everything. It improves the fiddliness in the original with the goods. It makes it a little less abstract with the player interaction, a little less solitaire. Um, you've got that map now that you can consider with that Mediterranean expansion, which is a visual spatial kind of thing to look at. 
um, it, it just really kind of fires on a lot more cylinders for me than the original did. So uh, while I still have the original and I'll still plan on keeping it because I do like it, it is something fun and light you can pull out with people, this would be the one that I would grab first without a doubt. So uh, that's my impressions and that's my kind of quick look at Roll Through the Ages, the Iron Age with the Mediterranean expansion designed by uh, Thomas Lehman and published by Eagle Griffin Games. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. I, of course, want to thank uh, Matt for joining me for a great discussion about the classic game of Medici. Uh, I also want to thank, of course, my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. Uh, go and check out all the Game Surplus has to offer, from their fantastic prices to exceptional customer service and care to their care and their packaging and speedy shipping. Go check out GameSurplus.com, and if you order from them, please be sure to tell them the long view sent you. I also, of course, want to give a shout-out to the Dice Tower Network. Thanks to them for their continued support, because The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and is proud of the other wonderful podcasts that are offered for everybody out there. There truly is something for everyone. Go and check them out at Dicetower.com. Also, of course, I want to thank uh, my local game store, The Gamer's Edge. Give them a little plug. They're conveniently located off of Interstate 80 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So if you're looking for some gaming goodness, uh, look no farther than uh, The Gamer's Edge. They have a friendly and dedicated staff, a huge selection of board games, and lots of open space. So stop on by The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to Matt for being my guest, and have a great night.